Do you ever rewrite the lyrics to songs? I do this all the time, often subconsciously. For example, recently I was studying, I had my Bible, I had a pad of paper and I was just writing and I caught myself humming the tune to Physical by Olivia (laughs) Newton-John, a song that I frankly detest. And I stopped writing and I thought, why am I hearing that awful song in my head? But then I listened to the lyrics that I was silently singing. This is what my goofy brain had done. I was singing, let's get logical, logical, let's get theological, let me hear the scriptures talk. Now, besides wondering if I need serious psychiatric meds, you're thinking, I'm sure, hearing that in your Olivia Newton-John voice, um, what were you studying that triggered that rewrite, right? Great question, thank you for asking. At the moment, I was looking over God's attributes. And I was scribbling on my piece of paper how we, how we struggle to understand some of God's attributes more than others. For example, a God is love. Well, we can understand that. We, we experience glimpses of love in life. I wrote, God is intelligent. We somewhat grasp this because humans have a modicum of intelligence. God is majestic. We, we see that one really dimly, uh, usually only in nature. And then God is jealous, biblical fact. And I wrote, we totally whiff on this one because we don't grasp holy jealousy. And as I was was writing that last one that I started hearing my mind say, let's get theological, let me hear the scriptures talk. So, let's get theological. Holy jealousy is a very difficult idea for us. When we think of jealousy, that weird breakup in college comes to mind, not God's passion for us. To understand, we must start here. Yahweh wants what is best for us. And what is best for us is wholehearted engagement with Him. He is jealous for our good. Read with me God's great statement He gave through Moses. uh, Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. Let's read it together line by line. You are never to bow down to another God because Yahweh, being jealous by nature, is a jealous God. Yahweh, the almighty, only real God who establishes covenant love with humans, with us, He is jealous. His nature is to care so deeply that he is jealous for our souls to be free from the horrors of idolatry. So think this through. Think this through. On a a scale of 1 to 10, how jealous should God feel about your soul today? Uh, Look at the scale in your notes. Uh, They're inside your worship guide. Open it up. On the left-hand side, you'll see a scale. I'm not going to walk you through a whole thing. You You can think this through yourself. But let me just give you three numbers to work with. How jealous should God be? A 1 he should not be very jealous, is I'm, I'm wholeheartedly, continually engaged with him. Uh, let's say a five would be, I haven't, I haven't considered my relationship with God in days. How jealous should God be? A ten would be, I am actively worshiping something other than God. Anybody give yourself a one. Uh, it, don't be afraid. not going to pick on you. It's good. It's great. Anybody give yourself a one? Okay, you can leave. <laughs> Seriously, you very likely don't need the, the lesson that the rest of us require. Um, anybody else not give yourself a one, but want to move closer to the score of one? Raise your hand if you want to move closer to the score of one. Okay, m- me too. Jesus have us co- has us covered with some very practical help. Open your Bible to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, I apologize, I was told there's a, there's a typo in your notes. It's Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Middle of the Sermon on the Mount, that's where we're at, and let's read verses 19 through 21. 
Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Uh, by the way, it's really fun. In the, in the Greek, it actually doesn't say break in. It says break through because most burglaries at that time happened through the ceiling. Uh, roof tiles were easy to remove and it was just adobe under there so they would literally dig through the ceiling. So, um, but it's the same idea. Uh, where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Through a very memorable metaphor here, Jesus declares that we need values established on God's attributes. Let me explain. The contrast of places here in this passage, that's a shorthand way to display a contrast of values. Collect for yourself treasures. That's a really nice way to depict living according to a certain value system. Talk about a value system. Remember, Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' kingdom ethic. These are the values by which we should live. We need lives that are centered on heavenly rewards, not earthly ones. But of course, that makes us think for a moment. And if we really think in our John Travolta imitation from Greece, we say, but wait a minute, money makes the world go round, Sandy. To which Olivia Newton-John replies, even if that's true, Danny, it's only for this temporary world, right? God's attributes are the rule in the heavens. God's attributes and the values based on them are the foundation of Jesus' coming kingdom and the new earth is going to follow if, for a brief time, God has allowed money to partially rule this earth. That's not what will last. Look at, look at the very different outcomes for each value system. Look at Jesus has a binary illustration here. If your values are earthly, then they are founded on human attributes. That's it. Everything you believe is based on, on humans, usually human consensus or your own ideas. The outcome of that? Vanity. Loss. Thieves break in and steal. Moth and rust destroy. If, however, your values are Jesus' values from his kingdom ethic, then they're established on God's holy attributes, including his jealousy for your soul. The outcome of that is permanence in God's eternal rewards. Do you want permanent outcomes? Do you want to build to last? That's what God wants. That's what he jealously wants for us. The alternative is to inherit emptiness, vanity. I say vanity because that's the term Solomon uses when he's discussing all this in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, it, it means something transitory. Uh, listen, D.A. Carson says this, his wonderful book on the Sermon on the Mount. Ecclesiastes pictures the construction of buildings, the work ethic, sex, reputation, power, various philosophies, and then dismisses each of them as vanity and striving after the wind. The word translated vanity is not to be taken to mean that all these things are equally useless, stupid, vain, but that all these things are transient. By contrast, close quote, by contrast, a life constructed on Jesus' values has permanence. Please note, Jesus' statement is about a value system. This is not a condemnation of money. <laughs> if this were a condemnation of money, then what we're going to read in a minute would be a condemnation of clothes. All right? Jesus' issue is twofold. Ultimate rewards and the governance of our lives here and now. Jesus is talking with his disciples, right? He's sitting with his disciples, and this is one of the first times he makes a statement about the rewards and losses that await Christians at our judgment. At the judgment seat of Christ, there will be permanent eternal rewards for actions that have been taken according to Jesus' ethic. We should live focused on that. Now, I need a volunteer, some kid. Come on up. Let's go. You got your hand up first. Let's go. Come on. All right. You're going to stand right here where that black mark, uh, where the little box is there on the stage. And 
you're going to walk toward me, but wait, don't walk yet. Before you walk, you need to look down and really get your head down so you only see your shoes, okay? And then walk as straightly as you can toward me. Look at your shoes. Ready? Go. That's a little wiggly. You're doing great. Very good. All right. Now, did you notice that you locked with very little confidence and with quite a bit of wiggle, right? Let me show you the difference. Stay right there. Okay, now, this time, walk toward me, but look straight at me the whole time. Okay, come on, Gus. Look at that. Such confidence, even in high heels. That's amazing. Um, do you see the difference? Okay, wi- the, the reason is what you, what you focus on determines how you walk to get there. It, it really does. So when you, when you are focused on something that, that matters, when you're looking up, then, then you, you walk straightly. Give my partner a hand, would you please? She did a great job. The amount of focus on your goal determines how you get there. Again, Dr. Carson speaks of this really well. I put part of this quote in your notes. I liked it so much. He says, it's not merely a question of ultimate rewards. It's much more than that. For the things we treasure actually govern our lives. What we value tugs at our minds and emotions. It consumes our time with planning, daydreaming, effort to achieve. As Jesus puts it, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If a man wants above all else to make a lot of money, buy an extravagant house, ski in the Alps, or sail in the Mediterranean, head up his company or buy out his competitor, build his reputation, or achieve that next promotion, advance a political opinion, or seek public office, he will be devoured by these goals, and the values of the kingdom will get squeezed out. Notice none of the goals I mentioned is intrinsically bad, but none is of ultimate value either. Therefore, any of them can become evil if it is valued as ultimate treasure and thereby usurps the place of the kingdom. And how much uglier is the situation when the goals are positively evil? But the principle remains the same. We think about our treasures. We're drawn toward our treasures. We fret about our treasures. We measure other things and people by our treasures. Close quote. So what do people around here treasure? What are the desires that rule our lives? I conducted an informal poll. This is informal. It was only a, a few dozen people, and I got, seven, I got seven answers multiple times. These are the answers I got most often, the multiple answers. What do we treasure around here? Comfort, victimhood, interesting, that surprised me, power, money, revenge, success, and children. Okay? Now, some of those things are fine. Even, even good. But are any of those supposed to rule my life, yes or no? No. <laughs> Listen, friend, don't assume that your values are ruled by God just because you go to church or just because you're a believer in Christ. Our flesh is amazingly creative coming up with new things to treasure, none of which are God. What might be one thing that is getting in the way of you storing up treasure in heaven? What might be one thing that you're treasuring that is less than God. Rich Mullins brilliantly wrote, he said, the stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things. What's in the way of you focusing on God and living out his values? Think, what is it? Whisper it to yourself. Maybe write it down. Now with that thing in mind, are you willing to put that rusty, vanity aside and position yourself to value what lasts forever instead yes or no yes then read the next two verses verse 22 the eye is the lamp of the body 
If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? The headlines continue on the right side of our notes. We need singularity of focus. Please catch the singular eye. Do you see that? It is telling that the Lord uses a singular eye here and not the more logical plural, eyes. So why is it I instead of eyes? Because Jesus was calling attention to the singularity of focus, the idea of singular focus. Look, look, the, the Greek word we render good is aplus. Uh, good is aplus. It, it, it's translated uh, good, sincere, clean, healthy, but it only, it only signifies those things by association. The word aplus actually means singular or simple. That's what it means. Singularity is the point. If your eye is single, that sounds really goofy in English, right? If your eye is single, try e-harmony. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. But, but that is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying you can only see one image when you look at something. That's good. When the eye is bad, by parallel extension, that would mean doubled. There's no clear sight. Rather, all is darkness. Your, your retinal nerves and your brain make a singular image. Imagine otherwise. Ah, wouldn't that be troubling to see double all the time? You couldn't tell where to go. Headaches would be terrible. That's darkness indeed because you would close your eyes. That's too painful to look. Jesus gave uh, similar instructions uh, other times. Luke recorded one instance. In Luke's telling, the light was emphasized. Here it's darkness. And how deep is the darkness when focus isn't singular? A, a friend of mine was born with a defect that caused her brain increasingly as she grew to see more and more double. Her eye was not aplus. Thankfully, she had successful surgery that fixed her problem, positively changed her life. Do you and I need spiritual eye surgery? How's our vision? God is jealous for us to have singularity of focus. This is an idea that changes lives. That's why James, in his epistle, twice used double-minded as a negative term. Here's, here's one instance, James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, double-minded people. Even people who reject Jesus understand the import and the wisdom of his call to singular focus. Even the world understands this. For example, about 70 years after Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, uh, a famous Stoic philosopher, this guy, Epictetus, he, uh, he, was, he was really captivated by what Jesus had to say. Didn't trust Christ as Savior, but he rewrote the Sermon on the Mount. Here's how he put it. He said, if you strive after moral excellence and at the same time clutch at power and possessions, you will most likely lose these last from having an eye to the former also, and you will most certainly lose the former. Close quote. Of course, now I have infected you with the curse of thinking of songs and rewriting the lyrics, right? So when we cover the badness of double vision, how many of you thought of the old rock song by Foreigner, Double Vision? Yeah, you, you, you thought of it. And now in your Mick Jones imitation, I bet you're thinking what I'm thinking. Uh, you're thinking, seeing down and dirty, seeing all is mean. Da -da -na -na -da -na -na -na. I can't see anything. It is so extreme. I need to get a good eye. Ain't got time to wait. Everything is dark because I can't see straight. Fill my eye with a single vision. No warping by that double vision. Ooh, when God gets through to me, I can see so clearly. My single vision brings the light to me. Good, right? God wants us to sing like that because he's jealous for believers in Jesus to live his values, to have a singular focus. And the singularity of God's calling continues. Read the next verse, verse 24. No one can be a slave of two masters. 
since either he will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and money. Verse 24 shows we need singularity of service. Three things to understand here. First, our slavery must be understood. The translations that read serve are a bit misleading. Um, slave is, is really better here. You see, Matthew uh, records dulevo. That's a form of the word doulos. So doulos is a slave who has willingly bound himself to a master. It is his choice to serve this master. Now, just because the slavery was willing doesn't make it any less complete. The master controls all aspects of that slave's life. Epictetus, that, that philosopher we read a moment ago, the one who, who quoted Jesus, he was himself a doulos. He bound himself to, uh, to this master, uh, Titus, Titus Claudius Epaphroditus. By the way, he was a very important dude in Rome. Epaphroditus, his master, was the secretary, the official secretary to the Emperor Nero. Okay? Epaphroditus controlled every aspect of Epictus' days. Now, Epaphroditus was a great master. Um, he actually, uh, he saw talent in Epictetus, and he paid for Epictetus to study philosophy. But as long as that master lived, all of Epictetus' service was due to Epaphroditus. Anyone here ever had a really great boss? Raise your hand if you ever had a really great boss. Okay. How did you speak of him or her? How did you talk about them? Positively, praise, happy, thankful. Um, and let me ask you this. Under that boss, when you had a really great boss, did you mainly goof around or focus on your job? Which should you do? Mainly focus on the job, except when the boss is goofing around, right? The reason Epictetus speaks so highly of Epaphroditus, and by the way, he does in all of his writings, is that, is that that master cared for him. Epaphroditus developed him. That, that may be what helped this Stoic understand what Jesus was saying. Likewise, if you and I are going to understand, if we're going to have singular service, our wonderful slavery to Jesus must be understood. We are blessed to be his doulos. Also, the two master image must be understood. Jesus talks of loving master A, hating B, or vice versa. Now, interestingly, this is wild. Matthew keeps the last word of verse 24 in Aramaic. Um, mamonos. Uh, some people have claimed this was some Near Eastern god called Mammon, but I cannot find any evidence that any such god ever existed in any culture. It is a cool play on words, which explains, I think, why God had Matthew keep this one word out of all these words in Aramaic and not Greek. The, the word itself means worldly wealth, and, and it's emphatic, which means lots of worldly wealth. But the twist is, the root word is an ancient Semitic term, ahmein. Since you people go to church, you likely have heard this word. We pronounce it amen, okay? Amen. It's a very, very old word. Amen came to mean so be it or, or as you will. But, but the experts tell me that ahmein, amen, originally meant, get this, that in which someone trusts. That in which someone trusts. The word for wealth, mammon, developed from ahmein for a very good reason. Because money is what most people trust. How cool is that? Jesus is being very clever here. And it's not lost on his disciples, at least not on Matthew, the former tax collector. The Lord says you can trust God saying amen to him, or you can be enslaved to that which most people trust, money. Now we understand why our American forefathers started putting in God we trust on their coins and later on their printed money. During the Civil War, there was a Pennsylvania Baptist minister, uh, Mark Watkinson, and, uh, and he, together with Salmon P. Chase, who was the uh, Secretary of the Treasury, they were really concerned about something. 
They were worried that later eras would look back on the United States during the Civil War and think that the U.S. was only serving money, that this war was just another example of a bunch of heathens who were enslaved to mammon. So they wanted to make it clear that their United States was only serving one master, God. So they convinced Congress, an amazing accomplishment, they convinced Congress to put on the money itself, I think that's a, that's a fun little play that Jesus would have enjoyed, on the money itself they put, in God we trust. Now, I don't know how accurate that motto is. Much of the time in God we trust is fake news. But at least our forebears attempted, at least they tried to understand and respond to Jesus' two-master image. One last thing to note about singularity of service, and that is serving God cannot be faked. Listen, there is no problem with working hard, making money, carefully stewarding funds. In fact, those can all be excellent ways of praising God. The answer to our ugly duality is not to join a monastery. Jesus specifically calls us to be in the world. The answer is to stop faking. Here's the real fake news epidemic of our time. We pretend that we are managing, you like that? Did you like that? Yeah. We, we pretend that we are managing our money as an outgrowth of our service to God. When in reality, what we're doing is we're using God as a tool to make ourselves feel better about our real slavery to money. As, as one of our now retired elders uh, used to say, still says it fairly regularly, he says, we like to sprinkle a little Jesus on it and pretend that everything's okay. Tom Peralt of our church reminded me this week of a statement by Greg McCown, his book Essentialism. Greg says this, the word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. It meant the very first or prior thing. It stayed singular for the next 500 years. Only in the 1900s did we pluralize the term and start talking about priorities. Illogically, we reasoned that by changing the word, we could bend reality. Somehow, we would now be able to have multiple first things, close quote. We pretend we can serve two masters, so we can have multiple priorities. But the outcome is always that one is the true master. Here's the proof. Deep down, just as Jesus predicted, we despise God. When we're serving mammon, we despise God. Whatever lip service we may give to the triune God, we actually hate Him. How can you tell? Whenever His Word calls us to something hard, what do we do? We cower, we complain, and we often flee. We will even flee church communities when they convict us about our duality of service. It's easier, folks, it's just so much easier to join the throngs at a prosperity gospel church where serving money is paramount. Why is that easier than responding to God's holy jealousy? Because we don't trust God. Which explains why Jesus next shows that we need to trust God. He even walks us through the logic of how to trust God. Read the next section, verse 25. This is why I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look, look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? By the way, it, it literally says a single cubit to his height. The reason a lot of translations will make that a single cubit to your lifespan is that... Um, Adding to your height was a euphemism in the first century for adding to your lifespan. So it's, so it's both, all right? You can't do either. You can't add to your height. I know, I've tried for years. You can't add to your height, and you can't add to your lifespan by worrying. 
<clears throat> and why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat? <gasps> or what will we drink? <gasps> or what will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will <laughs> worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Close quote. Don't worry. Trust God. Now, sadly, that ethic, Jesus' ethic, is not currently cool. I don't know if you've noticed, but in our era, it is cool to be gloomy. Um, people are walking around like anti-Pharrell Williams all the time. They're, they're singing songs like this. Because I'm gloomy, cry along. If you feel like a house with a leaky roof. Because I'm gloomy, cry along. If you feel like there is no real truth. Right? Negativity appears wise to us. And by the way, we don't corner the market on this. John Stuart Mill summarized this tendency way back in 1828. He wrote this. I have observed that not the man who hopes when others despair, but the man who despairs when others hope is admired by a large class of persons as a sage, close quote. We look wise and we get applause when we are jaundiced and when we worry. This is ingrained into fallen human thinking. Let me illustrate with this. Tell me which of these is correct. Three statements, which one is correct? Okay, one of these is correct. A, over the past 25 years, the number of people living in extreme poverty worldwide has dropped from 49% to less than 9%. B, over the past 25 years, the number of people living in extreme poverty worldwide has stayed about the same. C. Over the past 25 years, the number of people living in extreme poverty worldwide has increased slightly, 27 to 29%. Which of those is true? It's A. It's A. Worldwide, throughout human history, there have been a few wonderful blips of exceptions, but worldwide, throughout human history, extreme poverty has been about 50% throughout all of human history, and yet, in the last 25 years, it has dropped down to 8.75% of the world lives in extreme poverty. 2013, a guy named Hans Rohling, uh, uh, Rosling uh, posed that question. He posed those three options to 1,000 Americans in a survey. Do you know how many Americans answered A? 5%. 5%. He, he likes to point out in his paper that a monkey choosing blindly could have done better. Why? why? Why did we so few choose A? Because we possess an inbuilt desire to worry, to see the worst. Jesus patiently walks us through the illogic of worry. This is ingenious. Look at, look at his insights. Five main points to Jesus' argument here. Five main points. Worry focuses on things that are less than eternal. Worry adds no time to your lifespan. Worry is a pagan activity. It is unworthy of Christians. It's unworthy of you. Worry ignores that God knows and God provides, and worry just adds trouble on to trouble. Brilliant. But that you then, of course, in your Pharrell Williams voice are asking, so then why do we worry? Great question, Pharrell. Thank you for asking. Jesus shows why, because we have little faith. You see that? We don't trust God. We fearfully think we need to look out for ourselves. Lord Matt Ridley of the UK Parliament um, made a really interesting observation the other day. I, uh, in fact, I looked up his whole speech and then researched it. Here's the observation he made. He said a finding 
by the Harvard psychologists David Lavari and Daniel Gilbert suggests that the rarer something gets, the more broadly we redefine the concept. They found in an experiment that the rarer they made blue dots, the more likely people were to call purple dots blue. And the rarer they made threatening faces when they were showing them to people, the more likely people were to describe any face as threatening. Close quote. I went on to read Lavari and Gilbert, and they seem to have almost caught up with Jesus. People worry because they don't trust a sovereign God. There are fewer threats, so I look for threats everywhere because I have to protect myself. That's why we worry. It's an effort to protect ourselves. That, that's why it's cool to be gloomy. You know what we do? We even tell other people to be gloomy as a way to make sure they protect themselves. Entire industry in our world. My family and I experienced this firsthand when our daughter was in ICU. We had this nurse who advised us to stop praying for our daughter's healing. Seriously. She said, you're wearing yourselves out. And she said, and I quote, you need to just prepare yourselves that this child is too sick and will not make it through this fight. My sweetheart looked at her and Jana replied immediately. She said, I'm going to trust God and keep positive. If he chooses to miraculously save this child, I can enjoy it. If he does not, I'll have plenty of time to be depressed. There is no reason to start early. My response was not quite as gracious. I went to her boss and had her removed from our care. Jana's point was almost certainly in her mind because we had been reading this passage. We had spent time listening to Jesus. She believed God is sovereign, that he will accomplish what concerns us. Friends, that is not just a modern ICU phenomenon. It was cool to be gloomy even in the first century, but then as now wise people choose to trust God instead of starting depression early. Jesus shows gloomy is not cool. In fact, it's ridiculous. Look, look God superintends the bird. He clothes the grass. Last week, I had tea with some dear old friends of mine. While we were having tea and talking, their daughter came in, and she had been in the woods around the house, and she collected a bunch of wild daffodils that were blooming. Look at those. Aren't those gorgeous? Absolutely beautiful, aren't they? If God provides like that for some wild, grassy plant that's going to last all of maybe a week, what do you think he feels toward you? But still, we worry. In doing so, we lose our singularity of focus, we stop responding to God's holy, loving jealousy for us. We stop living out the values that are built on God's attributes. We start acting like all the idolaters around us. So let's be honest and brave, church. If you're willing, raise your hand, and when I point to you, share in a few words how you are most likely to worry. If you're willing, I think it'd be good to share with each other what things spark worry. What, what causes you to look at your feet instead of up to God? Raise your hand. Anybody brave enough to tell us what causes worry? Health. Financial security. Yes. Your kids. Yeah, very good. It's pretty fun that your kid had his hand up. I think he was going to say his mom. Um, <laughs> yes. At the very, very, very back, against the wall, what do you got? What is it? Not having a strong enough voice to yell that far? I understand. That's a worrisome thing. How about you in front? What do you got? Did you have your hand up? Yeah, let's hear it. Your job. Yeah, job. Always. Okay, I, 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 relate, to, I relate to all of those. I think many of us do. Thank you, by the way. Now, what changes if, if I take that thing about which I worry, that arena where I have a tendency to worry, and we all do, and I seek instead God's kingdom and righteousness with that thing. 
You see, that's the key. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, build my life on this ethic in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul puts it this way. He has beautiful shorthand for this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Read it with me if you would. Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Setting my mind above. Seeking first the one priority of God's kingdom. That doesn't take away the danger. You realize that grass still gets burned up. Birds still fall. <laughs> in fact, this is awesome. Right after the little girl brought in these beautiful wild daffodils for, for Uncle Wayne, we heard this <laughs> thump, and, and I looked out, and there was a bird that had died flying right into their window. <laughs> was, yeah, they still die, okay? The things you worry about are often valid. They are real problems. Grass gets burned up, but... But if I will seek first God's kingdom and righteousness, even in the face of that severe issue, it changes how I enjoy the brief moments of this life. If I focus on God's eternal kingdom, it expands my perspective. I work on living out his righteousness instead of wallowing in all of my concerns. So if you worry about your kids, talk to the Lord God Almighty. Trust him. He loves those little brats far more than you ever can imagine, right? He is jealous for them, just as he is for you. Remember, while he gives responsibility to us, he does not need our help. If you worry about money, recognize whom you are serving. Quit being like everybody else. They all serve mammon. You serve God. Work hard, but do so trusting him to provide. Amen? And we could go on and on and on. Let, let me just close by sharing what an early boss of mine taught me, wonderful boss that I had, said to me many, many times, find the issue, work the issue. Wayne, find the real issue, work the issue. Now, this may sound odd, but I have learned that the real issue is almost never what I'm worrying about. The real issue is not my illness, not my broken relationship, not the government, not whatever. The real issue is the singularity of my relationship with our loving, jealous God. That's the issue. So let's work the issue. Pray with me. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters. We recognize that you have reason to be jealous for our souls. And we're sorry. That is unacceptable and foolish. And we pray for and appreciate your forgiveness. Lord, change us that we might build disciplines in our lives, that we might build governors that help us catch when we are getting off of our singular focus. Lord, help us take our worry and hold it up to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And then all these things are added to us. And Father, I pray most especially for anyone studying with me who is not a believer in Jesus. Friend, listen, you're serving. I promise you, you are enslaved. Now, sometimes it's obvious to you. You know, you know you're enslaved to some kind of addiction or some kind of pain or problem. But even if you don't see it, I promise you the scripture is very clear. You are enslaved. 
And I just want to tell you about our great master. He puts Epaphroditus to shame. He develops us. He frees us. He loves us. He is jealous in every positive way for us. Oh, please, I, I beg you, trust our master, would you? He will, he will buy you out of your slavery. What he did was our master Jesus, who is fully God, he died on a Roman cross. And he rose from the dead to pay for your sins if you believe on him. He buys you out of the slavery of your life and allows you to follow him in everlasting life, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Trust him right now. Believe on Jesus as your Savior. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand, please. Let me rejoice with you. Look up at me and raise your hand. Good. Father, thank you. Thank you for these Christians, new and old. I, have, I pray that we will indeed seek one thing, you only, that we serve one master, you only. Thanks for the offering we're about to take. It's a, it's a rubber meets the road example of this because it hurts. I don't, <laughs> I don't like giving away my mammon. Oh, but it's so good for me to recognize it's yours. Thank you. Thank you for my brethren and the opportunity to study here with you and, and be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.